Every journey begins with a single step. For many, the first step is the greatest challenge. Yet for all, the obstacles, the doubt, and conviction teach us about ourselves. It's these moments in life, a test of our abilities, our mind, when we don't know, but we still proceed. Driven by the unspoken, but ignited by the obsession that yields some of life's greatest lessons and rewards. Join me as we explore incredible stories of leaders forging industries, enterprises, and ultimately, themselves. I'm your host, Adam Geary, and welcome to Capital Class. Let's begin. Classmates, as we approach the school year, the start of a new season, I felt like returning to the classroom felt appropriate. For many learners, they decide early on that you know, they're not a math person, right? And while this may be true for some, it's also possible that the lessons, the way they were delivered, how you experienced them, supported this belief. On today's episode, we're joined by an educator turned entrepreneur. And for those who know, that's my career path. And I feel that when you see many of successful ed tech leaders, they followed that career path. So we're very, very fortunate to have Anarupa Ganguly with us today, founder and CEO of Prisms VR, focusing on stretching the new paradigm in math education. Anarupa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Adam. You know, I mentioned earlier in the start of the show, there are many successful ed tech leaders who started in the classroom. And probably some who have done TFA, Teach for America, for those of us who don't know the acronym, but I don't know many who went from TFA to Teach for India, back to back. Tell us a little about your journey, about you know being in the classroom in a TFA experience, and then obviously going right out of, which can be pretty intense, uh, into another you know, kind of deeper dive and for Teach for America, Teach for India. Yeah, it's interesting that we, we started with that inflection point. Um, you know, when I think about my experiences in, in Teach for America, the, 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 the biggest kind of memory I have is that I was at a precipice in my, in my career when I was, when I was graduating from college, um, where I, at MIT, there wasn't really a pipeline for, um, if you studied engineering to go into becoming a high school teacher or get, getting into education, like the, the career paths were very linear. You, you re- recruit for tech or you recruit for consulting and, you know, TFA was, uh, you know, I remember I was about to sign an offer to kind of join a more traditional tech company coming out of university. And I, I learned about TFA like a few months before I was graduating and I quickly wow. was able to get the application in and it completely changed the trajectory of my life and in my understanding of how I can apply everything I learned in terms of systems thinking and and um, and how to kind of break down problems in the way that engineers do uh, to, to apply that thinking to education and education reform and I found that to be a really valuable experience and felt like um, my home country of India uh, we have a very very similar problem where there are a lot of, of people that want to contribute but their educational experience didn't set them up to be a part of the educational kind of reform movement. And that's what really catalyzed my um, kind of move. I sold everything uh, and said, I'm going to move to India. And I traveled around the country, really working with teachers and schools and, um, you know, building a pipeline for for folks coming out of pre-med tracks and engineering tracks and, and getting them in the classroom. 
I feel when we talk to ed tech companies in other parts of the world, and this is natural, right? I think every country has their own worldview. They're like, oh, well, you know, we must be different than blank, insert whatever country. And what I have found is that they're often just incredibly similar. When you were going back to the classrooms in India, I mean, tell us about that experience. Like, as similar to your TFA, completely different. I mean, what what was what was your experience? I would actually have I would be on the other side of that argument. I think that too uh, too much of like the um, kind of development narrative in other countries has been let's take what's worked in the Western world and kind of like superimpose it onto this cultural context and it'll work because humanity is the same. And I actually that I think that ignores the cultural context of a country. And there was a we actually encountered a lot of roadblocks because we weren't as mindful of that. Like English as the primary modality of instruction, like that in and of itself is an assumption. India is a a country of 144 languages and dialects. And so I think that we ran into a lot more, um, many more challenges. I also think just the economic background of just the, of the level of poverty that you're dealing with, it's very, very different to the United States. In the US, say what you will. And I think that was one of the biggest um, change I saw in my life of when I came back to the US public education system, I was so grateful. I was like, we have the resources to solve this problem. Whereas in India, you are really kind of working in um, just a very, very decrepit infrastructure where you like don't have floors, you don't have walls, the toilets aren't working. So what happens is the intellectual energies are going towards like base level Maslow's levels of hierarchy stuff, which wasn't the case in in, in my TFA experience. Yes, the schools needed a lot of support, but like the basic things worked. And so I think more than anything, it, it, I came back like with conviction. I said, you know, given how much folks in, in other countries are able to accomplish with one thousandth the resources they have, we can solve this problem in the in the in the U.S. We have the wherewithal, we have the resources, we have the leaders. It's just a matter of really kind of executing and having the political will to see those things through, which of course is its own battle and has its own difficulties. Um, but yeah. I must have a greater appreciation. You know, I, I have no experience with that type of teaching environment. Like you, I, my classrooms had the basics and, and plus, 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 right? Like, I mean, everything you could have contemplated, I think on a, maybe a, a Americanized scale, you would say, oh, well, you know, we might've had, you know, maybe not every kid was one-to-one or, you know, you had those kind of reference points, but what you're talking about is entirely different and it adds a lot of perspective when you also point out that India does produce an incredible amount of engineers and incredible amount of scientists. And I, I wonder what percentage of those, they didn't just have to overcome the challenges of learning. They had to overcome the challenges of going to school in a facility that really didn't set them up to learn. Yeah, and I, and I and I think that um, the teach for model is predicated on this idea that um, if you have a good teacher, you can kind of solve most of the problems. And I think that in the U.S., like that, it's still a, a lim- it, it, it it's a limited narrative. But um, I think in India, it's even less so because it's you can you cannot for you can't expect teachers to be superhumans. That's not their job to go in and figure out how to fix the toilets and make sure that like 
it, it, it was, there was so much infrastructure that was missing. So how can a teacher focus on conceptual understanding in math and real world problem solving and, um, you know, and meaningful um, conversations about, about um, uh, the book that they're, that they're reading. So, you know, I, I kind of came away realizing that we have to be very categorical about what a teacher's job is and what it isn't. And when you try to put too much onto the profession, not only are you setting those people up for failure, but you're making it all, you're, you're making this one person like the bottleneck of a system wherein they shouldn't either be glorified or vilified in that way. And so um, I just, I think the whole narrative around what a teacher is and her role has been problematic both in the U.S. and abroad it's like been this like martyr and that's not her job like oh do you see teachers are like you know doing all these things like we should we should look at that and go should a teacher be doing all those things like is that a is that a good use of her time is that allowing her to really focus on the socio-emotional and the academic learning outcomes that is her responsibility like does she need to be fixing the pipes right so in any way like this is a much larger conversation around the scope of the teaching role and our inability to scope it properly, which is both affected turnover. Um, it's, 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 it's precluded most many, many teachers from really attaining their potential. That is a profound point when you consider that you would never have anybody at your business, right? So change gears for a minute. If you had someone at your business who answered the phones, ran the books, like did client onboarding, right? Signed contracts. You would say, whoa, you're doing way too much. And you're not nearly going to be that effective at all those things, right? They're just, you're going to have less uh, success in something. And yet, for our educators, you're right, right? I mean, they really, truly wear 10 hats every day. And I think compound that with a profession that, yeah, is under... I don't want to say under attack, maybe that's a broad sense, but it does feel like it's misunderstood. And I think part of that is to your scope point. Like it's maybe we just expect a teacher to, to be everything. And when you're everything, you're kind of nothing. The, the intellectual preparation needed to prepare for a high quality discussion or lesson is a lot. And it's, it's a certain type of skill set. And what's happened is a teacher's energies have become diluted. She's not focused on her content and the, the students and the student data and the formative assessment. Like that's not the bulk of her work. The bulk of her work is a lot of admin work in the U.S. I mean, and like I said, in India, it's like a whole other can of worms. Um, and, you know, instead of like continue to brute force, like, oh, we got to hold teachers accountable. It's like, Hold them accountable for what? The eight different KPIs that in a, in a normal corporation, somebody would have like two KPIs to hit and she has like 10 and she's underpaid and she has no resources or a manager. I mean, I mean, the whole system is like highly flawed. Right. And I think that we haven't talked about this yet, but that's really kind of the 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 reason I'm, I'm building what I'm building is I fundamentally believe that uh, the tools that a teacher has in her hand to deliver pedagogically effective instruction they, in the math world that we haven't had any yet. Um, and so I want to see what happens when you put a really sharp tool in, in, in a teacher's hand where she becomes a very strong analyst and facilitator versus the one having to build the rich problems and run around doing the project-based and problem-based learning model. Um, and the other thing I would say is teachers have often been seen as 
the obstacles to progress, like, oh, teachers aren't going to buy into that. Or, you know, good luck trying to get the, the teachers on board for this innovative new learning model. And I would argue teachers are our greatest ally. And we are not in, you know, just charter schools or quote unquote high performing schools. We are in the average public school. We're working with the average public school teacher and teachers are energized. They're inspired. They can smell, pardon, pardon me, they can smell the BS in, in that if they see a solution that's not well supported, that is not pedagogically effective, like they are going to kind of turn away from it. But if they see that the instructional model, the wraparound toolkits, the data systems, everything are easy to use um, and it's aligned to what they need to do and what they're accountable for, teachers are the first on the front line of progress. And so I think, again, changing this narrative of like, we have to fight the teachers, like they all want to go home at three o'clock. Like I have seen the opposite of that. And the reason why I've seen the opposite of that is because I've really kind of um, been clear with them and I've empathized with them around why they've been set up for, for, for failure for so many years and really paved a path from how do you get from this point to point B where I need you to be, to be able to facilitate the, you know, in my case, rich spatial learning and I'm going to pave that path for you versus saying, this is the expectation. We're going to have an accountability review. I'm going to come in with my rubrics and my checklist to, you know, uh, evaluate you, but not give a teacher any sort of pathway to, to improve their, their, their practices. You're a believer. I am. <laughs> you can feel it. Like this isn't like a job. No. This isn't about like an investor. <laughs> like this is your mission. It's my life. Yeah. And I, and I, and I think that that's, um, I reflect a lot on, uh, you know, right now it's a, it's a tough time in the market and founder mental health and just the pressure on founders in general, it's, it's, it's sky high. You can't really share a lot of it with your team because you know, you're, you're, you're oh. the leader and the stability of, of your organization. And when I kind of look around at my founder community, it goes back to like, most founders don't start their company because they're looking to make a buck, right? Uh, most founders start their company because they perceived and lived a problem that they were so compelled to solve that they put everything on aside to do it. And um, I'm just one of like many, many of those folks in education and, and other disciplines. But um, I think the only way to really change the tide in education um, is to work very, very, very closely with teachers and school systems and be on the ground to co-design these solutions with them because ultimately uh, they're your user and, they're in the, and, and the evolutions and the product future and the things that need to change will come from them. And to your kind of point, the, and that can be very taxing physically and mentally, uh, and you can't do this work unless you fundamentally believe that education can be different it can be delivered differently and we can quickly get the adults in the system there versus saying, well, social justice is like a bard. It's going to take another 30 years for change. Guess what? In those 30 years, you've lost millions and millions of kids. And so, no, we don't have 30 years to, to, to make these changes. And I, and I think that prisms, we have that sort of urgency um, at every level of our organization. And I think it's because we were all teachers, we were all district administrators and we all basically graduated generations of kids that we knew we were setting up for failure in their life. And I don't know if like we were able to continue to, to do that much longer. There's a couple items in here that I think are really valuable for our listeners. One is this, like when you're an outsider and you see someone who started their business, certainly the CEO title, right? If you say to me, 
what would most people describe the day-to-day life of a CEO? Their guesses are probably a lot more interesting and a lot more, uh, you know, they're sexy than what it really is, right? Which is, you know, a lot of decisions, a lot of doubt, right? At times loneliness. And then also you get the success and the satisfaction of something you've built and grown, but there's a journey in there. And we talk a lot about that on this show, but it's refreshing to hear other entrepreneurs share that, which is like, it's just the truth, right? Like the day you decided to start this business, you had no idea you'd make it here, right? And you, you have to generally leave something behind, right? You left a full-time job behind to do this. And there's just, there are those inflection points throughout that journey that every founder goes through, every leader goes through. And to hear you talk about it in a way of almost like you need that all in, but also preparing yourself for that, like make sure that you have the energy so that you could show up to that mission and not, not maybe basically almost have like mission fatigue. And I think that the fatigue is mitigated by spending more time with our customers and with ourselves. Um, most of my team is on the road most of the time, besides our engineering team, uh, we're always out of the building and that we get so much energy from watching this, seeing the excitement in our teacher's eyes, hearing them say, we, we were going to retire this year, but I'm staying in the field of teaching because I'm so inspired by this methodology. I've always wanted to teach kids through real world problems and have them standing up and be more agent. And this is always what I wanted. I didn't want that, but that's the system that we had. So I conditioned myself to become, to being as successful as I could in that system. And so I think, you know, we, the mission ultimately is for our children and our teachers. And and as a CEO, one decision I've made is we got to be out of the building as much as possible. Everybody needs to be in sites, needs to be watching, needs to be, needs to understand what we're doing all product insights like come from our customers. So it's, I think that's the way we kind of maintain our energy levels. It's just being with kids and teachers as much as we can. I love it. Inspiring. So we've, we've kind of nibbled around the edges of it, right? We're, we're hearing about it. You're a Dean. I think in the math department, if, if my uh, team has prepared me right here and there was a moment where you decided that you were no longer going to teach the way that either that school was, or you weren't going to use the curriculum that they were using. And that's now become Prism's VR. Take us there. Like what made you, what, what kind of, I obviously we hear the why, right? The why is you felt like there had to be a better way, but in the early days, like what was the original impetus for the product? Where is it now? Like, how are you measuring that success? Yeah, I think um, there are a few uh, things that come to mind when I think about like key inputs that drove me to, to this point. And it was actually over, over a course of a couple decades that, that, that stewed. Um, first was my experience in college. So when I was an undergrad, um, about you know 20% of my department were women um, in engineering and more than 50% dropped out. And by the time I got to grad school there, there was just no minority students left. So that was like my first indicator of something is grossly going wrong because um, the, the drop-offs are just disproportionately affecting certain student groups over others. 
Um, and that's what was, was one of the main reasons I wanted to become a teacher to see what's happening in K-12 math and science, such that for our most advantaged kids, you're seeing those drop off. So what could potentially be happening for our historically underserved communities? And so that's what drove me to become a high school math and physics teacher. And then I served in a number of district administrative roles. And what I kind of found doing that work is that I was the voice of kind of rich, progressive pedagogy in mathematics. There are a couple problems with that. To facilitate problem-based learning through kind of rich discourse and problems and then converge on mathematical fluencies so kids are ready for assessments, that is a Herculean um, effort with the tools that we have because the tools that we have are basically online lectures and videos. Like that's not preparing them for mm-hmm. um, w- w- with, the, with the competencies that we need. And so th- I saw a very big um, kind of just divergence between what we want kids to be doing and the experiences we want them to be having and the tools that we had. And the other big thing that I learned, um, Adam, is that the top indicators of success in post-secondary STEM is one, your ability to rotate 3D objects in your mind and maintain perspective and kind of reason spatially. And two, your ability to abstract from your everyday life experiences, your perceptual experiences. So I'm looking at those going, okay, those are the top two indicators. We don't teach either of those. So that was the real impetus, right? When I realized that of like, we're trying to scale a pedagogy with problem-based work and discussion-based work. We don't have the tools for that. And the top indicators are spatial reasoning and abstraction from physicality. And we don't teach those. Of course, 70% of US eighth uh, eighth and ninth graders are not proficient in in algebra. Of course, we have the drop-offs that we do because we know what works and we're not doing it. So um, that was the genesis of PRISMS, uh, and that's why I'm building a spatial learning environment for mathematics, where we immerse children and students in real-world problems. They are, they, are the, they are an actor in that situation, and through missions, they get to then, from that problem that they discerned, they get to ascribe language, symbolic notation, and create different representations of thoughts and data visualizations, and finally, the equation. So we get them to the math model, but it's derivative of a series of experiences that feel very intuitive and very human. Whereas in the modern math classroom, uh, kids basically kind of memorize abstractions and equations and then, then try to find value, but we flip it where we they start with the value and then we allow them to derive those experiences. So we've begun with mathematics, uh, grades seven to 11. Those are, we're across 77 school systems right now. Um, we're uh, in core algebra one, geometry, middle school math, algebra two, pre-calculus. But we are uh, beginning with, with science. So we'll be releasing all of seven to 11 science. Um, and then we'll be, we'll be quickly moving into other disciplines as well. Because what we have found is once we put our product into schools, um, we started with algebra one. And then the geometry teachers were like, oh, kids are dancing out of algebra one. Like, we want that. And then they said, well, the algebra two teachers are like, well, we want that. And so it's been very much a, an organic growth um, hearing back from from our teachers, from our, from our year one pilots. I would say... You know, I'm not trying to age myself here, but I was in high school. So let's see. I was in 612 would be what, 2000 to 2004, something around that, right? And it was exactly, you got a series of formulas, you memorized them, you had a quiz on paper, they were given you a series of angles or shapes, you measured them. There's just no applicability. And then as you progressed, right, it was just more and more of the same, right? It's, can you memorize these series of formulas? You order, 
order of operations. So naturally, once you conclude that lesson in your life, you're like, okay, right? You just move on. Yeah. And it wasn't real. I guess that's the what what you're working on is like there was no tangible. I don't want to say there were tangible use cases, but they weren't they weren't applied in the classroom, right? They were like, well, you could use this when you're buying a car, and you're like, yeah, but why did I just have to? Why did I have to learn it this way when I? The lesson could have been you're buying a car, and here are all the things you need to do to understand compounding interest, right? And it just wasn't it wasn't delivered that way. Well, like what you're, what you're saying actually has like a really interesting nuance, right? So a good example of this was I was an algebra teacher and a physics teacher concurrently. And what I was finding was but my kids were doing really quote unquote well in algebra. They were not bringing any of their learning to physics because they had kind of boxed it in. Yeah. Now we're trying to basically break that line, right? We're saying that how do you experience the world? Like you are in an, you just had this experience, and how would, and you are compelled to solve this problem. It's an important problem to you because we only look at problems that are socially relevant to this generation. We look at things um, related to um, climate change. Um, we look, we look at um, uh, examples related to all things, sustainable architecture and building practices and future of tech and high speed trains. And we look at tons of applications across tech, biotechnologies, um, policies, and these are things that kids read about in the New York Times, the Atlantic, and they, they, they know it's happening, but they don't actually know how to be about a part of the conversation. They're, they're a passive actor. And now we're saying, hey, you see all these problems around you. We've told you that you're the generation to solve it, but you don't have an effective way to really talk about it that isn't emotional. Because everything, unfortunately, right now, when we think about these issues, it's, it's, it's highly political, highly emotional. We kind of remove all of that. Like We're not going to tell you what to do. Do whatever you want. Just know how to model these things and know how to create systems of thought that allow you to make the decision that you would like to make. So it's really giving kids a decision-making apparatus using mathematical models and knowing how to like, hey, I found myself in this situation. You said it beautifully. I'm in a situation. I got to buy a car. And from this point on, what are the next five things I do to make a good decision? And I think that people then ask me, well, like why VR? Like, can't we just do that on a piece of paper? I said, no, because unfortunately human beings haven't evolved out of perceptual learning. We are experiential beings. We still learn by a movement and touch and seeing. And so we assumed that the paper and pencil and screen were going to be able to kind of replace that. But I think I've found tremendous value in immersing kids in the problems themselves um, and having it be very first person versus like watching a video or watching a teacher narrate a problem. I imagine the, the agency of these students, right? It's theirs. Like they're learning. They figured it out, right? Like they experienced it. And I just feel like that's for the folks who have questions around. And I, and I share this right in that unstructured use of technology can have limiting effects on learning, right? If it's just, hey, we're putting kids on the internet or, hey, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're just throwing out VR devices, right? We as an organization set up a working group and the very first lesson, right? It's I bought headsets, sent them out. Everyone's like, they threw them on. And the disorientation of going into VR, right? It was... The very first, we, we couldn't even get everyone in the room, 
right? That was just experience one, but meeting two got better meeting three. And then now it's like, Hey, let's, let's meet up in VR because of the, you're getting a different experience than the Hollywood squares of zoom. And it's probably the same for learning. You're, you're not just three cars. Didn't leave the same city at the same time, driving at different speeds. And you're figuring out a math problem. This is you're driving one of these cars and you have to get there at a certain period of time, how fast you need to drive. What's, what's the rate you're traveling at. And that I think is an entirely different experience. Indeed. And it's this notion of like creating the intellectual need to learn something yes. from yourself, not someone else telling you that you need to learn it and the retention of that. What's happening is, you know, we've been running a lot of, of external studies and teachers are saying things like this used to take three to four weeks to teach because it was constant reteaching because the information was just kind of like, it was very fragile. But now it, you have, the child has such a deep connection to it because they're like, well, I want to save Miami from not getting flooded. And I want to make sure that our hospitals, hospital beds have enough beds as this virus continues to kind of affect people. And I want to like make sure that teachers can live in our city and make the um, uh, the building costs a little bit cheaper so that rents can be lower. And my teacher can like actually live in the city where she teaches. Like t our kids are like, it's really interesting. I, I wasn't expecting this. I thought, you know, all of our problems are very, um, there is a social good, like the value accrues to the public. And I think I was worried about like, you know, do kids really want to, is that what they care about? And it turns out that's true. If you can tap into human beings, ultimately the youngest amongst us, they care about community. They care about the world around them. They care about the people that they love. And I think that that unites everybody in every state and every community of the, of the U S and we're really kind of tapping into that in each of our, each of our students. Like we don't use gamification tactics. We're not trying to get them addicted to cool things in VR. That's not what it is. If you go into our environment, it's not super high fidelity, high graphics. It's nice. It's, you know, it's, it's comfortable, but that's not what we prioritized. We prioritize the richness of the problem and we prioritize the pedagogy um, of, and I love what you said is like, people have to learn. One of the biggest issues with VR is that it's highly distracting. So you can yes. actually go in there and learn nothing. Yeah. And so we've been like maniacally pressure testing, like what is the learning design? Uh, what is that linear set of activities that need to happen for the kid to actually walk away with a tangible and enduring learning? And I, if, I, if you were to ask me the one reason why prisms, the little success that we've had in schools, what's the number one reason it's that? It's that we prioritized objective driven learning through these real world problems over all things like product art fidelity and making something really pretty and making something sound really nice. Um, we will get there. We will get to that level of polish and iteration in the next version of the product. Um, but we have teachers and kids saying, I now understand linear functions. I now understand what a quadratic function is. And that's the real value proposition of VR. I, I say this with like from two hats. One is a former educator. And then now in my current role, which is, you know, leading the organization, advising education companies. Did you experience like a stigma or a misunderstanding as you were taking this product one to the capital markets? Because I, because go back the very same student who thought they weren't good at math, right. Or, or that math wasn't interesting or that math wasn't exciting. He or she, aged right and now they're investors or they're 
did you run into that as you were starting your business of like, whereas in other parts of the, the education system, like there's an understanding like, Oh, this is reading or, you know, this is history where it's like very finite in your case, in the math space, it does feel a little bit unknown as you were raising money and starting your business was, were those challenges that you experienced? I think the biggest challenge um, for the type of company that, that I'm building is just the market that we serve. K-12 sales has always been kind of imagined to be quite fragmented and it's hard to scale a sales team um, for K-12 effectively. Also VR, like you said, it's, it hasn't really um, kind of taken off in terms of hardware adoption. Uh, but I think that's where we were, we were different in terms of our timing, right? Like I started the company once the Oculus Quest one dropped and I was like, the tech is there. I wouldn't have started prisms before that. And, um, and so I think we were, it it was the right time to really begin to build for the medium. It was, we were ready to start really investing in just content dev versus like the software techniques and hardware improvements that were needed to get to a base level of, of um, comfort and a price point that's feasible for uh, school systems. Um, so, I, so I think the, the biggest issue from investors early on was, can you sell to school systems? Can you lead hardware adoptions? And the answer was, yes, we can. And that's what we're doing. Um, you know, 10 years ago, laptops and Chromebooks one-to-one weren't a thing and they are now. So you can't really, um, you have to have a belief system that spatial computing and natural interfaces are going to be the future of education, which I do. And that's why we, we started when we did. In terms of the, the, the um, kind of worries or misconceptions at, in schools, I think that they, they have been very wary about VR because it's like virtual field trips and those aren't bad things, but they aren't necessarily immediately aligned to their most egregious pain points. And so when they saw that, like, we are aligned, like, I will say it again, 70% of U.S. 8th and ninth graders are not proficient in algebra. That is a big problem. And we have a we have a very focused solution to that problem. And so they didn't care whether it was VR or this. Like, I was selling a pedagogy. I wasn't selling a device in my pitch deck to school systems. I don't, I don't even think VR is mentioned once because it's not about VR. I'm scaling a way of learning. And today I utilize VR, uh, HMDs. Tomorrow I might utilize a different modality. But, and I think schools are able to pick up on that. I'm not here to sell you a technology. I'm here to sell you an instructional method that you've wanted to implement for a long time. Like completely agree. And I think with the VR piece, you know, just let's talk about something that's really tangible that I think most people understand. The iPhone one does not do what your current iPhone does that's in your pocket. If you use an iPhone, right? But at some point there were these very early adopters who loved it, fervent supporters, but they recognized the limitations and then it got better, right? I use the metaverse and what was my first reaction to the metaverse? Uh, it's very, very well curated as in like the, the landing page, like when you arrive into your world, they've made it very visually beautiful, but it's kind of limited, right? Workspace is kind of limited, uh, you know? And so, but every time I'm in, it gets a little better. And I would say that, you know, as I think this, we will see a, a steady adoption of folks and it doesn't have to be 
Like, it's not just go and visit Egypt. And I agree. That's cool. But I think you your case is almost prescient that, like, we'll be there. Like, when you can take the hard things and pull them into the VR world and make them, frankly, more exciting, that's when I think VR will be like, a, oh, I get it. Yeah. And I think right now everyone's like, oh, well – you know, I, I, and I use the history example because it's what you hear the most about. Like, oh, you could go, like, don't read about ancient Rome. Go see yeah. it. Yeah. And that is really cool. But again, to your point, is that really a pain point? I mean, I'm not a historian. Uh, and I'm, I wasn't a history teacher, so I, I can't speak to it. But I think that, you know, when I think about my role in the public education system, the problems I was most quagmired by was not that one. Right. And, um, you know, I do, I do deeply believe in experiential learning, which is kind of this notion I'm, I'm going to go experience, listen to it, hear it rather than like read about it. Um, and so we really tried to start with exactly what you said. Let's start with the issues that, um, school districts have been battling for decades and we are, kids are failing year on year on year. Let's solve those problems first. Yeah. And then we can kind of get to some of the other ones. And that's, VR is kind of unequivocally positioned to teach kids math in a more engaging way, in a more purpose-driven way, in a more meaningful way. And purpose, meaning, and conviction are the three things that have been absent in the math classroom. So like if we can even provide that little value add, that's been a huge win for teachers and kids. Those are probably the three words I would use to describe you. (laughs) (laughs) Without a doubt. I, I talk a lot about and think a lot about energy. Right, we're kind of all trading energy for something. How do you recharge? Like with this amount of focus, with this amount of drive, like when do you find the time to just fill the cup back up? Hmm. You know, it's funny you say that. I uh, I moved from New York to San Francisco about a year and a half ago. Um, and I was prided myself in being a New Yorker and, you know, just the Northeast hustle. I, I, I moved out. I grew up in California, but moved, moved out to the East Coast for college. And when I first moved to San Francisco, I was just going to move for six months because, you know, it's the height of the pandemic and yeah. I wanted to kind of like be able to be outside and, and, and like take hikes. And I was, I left all my stuff in storage. I'm like, I'll be, I'll be back in Brooklyn soon. And, um, I stayed, I decided to stay in SF and I kind of asked myself why I naturally, like why that happened. My friends, my network, like so much was out in, in the East coast. Um, and it's kind it's connected to what you just said, the way that I'm able to recharge here. So on my weekends, I'm outside, I'm hiking, I'm in nature, I'm, I'm quiet, I'm still. Um, whereas in New York, it was constant, like I was at a bar, I was at a show, I was at a, a cultural event, which is incredible for mm-hmm. my previous chapter. But as a founder, your day to day is already so enriched with activity that you need those spaces to really just be quiet and and be with nature. And, and so it's not a sexy answer, but I, I spent a lot of my weekends, like not in the city and away from a lot of people. Um, I also, I'm a musician, so I, I sing. And, uh, you know, in the first year of starting my company, I had stopped singing altogether. I never touched my instrument and uh, I've like picked that up again. And I think that that's part of the founder journey is, when do you start to reconnect back to kind of fundamental aspects of yourself that you had to put on the back burner for a little bit, but that, you know, some parts of it are a sprint and some parts of it are a marathon. I think now at this junction, I'm now kind of getting more into marathon mode. So again, like getting back to those aspects of my routine and, and happiness that, that I need to, to feel like myself. I, I think your words are powerful. And I think more and more 
in my space where, you know, we share the same role, different businesses, I need those things that you need. And right. And, and I think why I mentioned that is like a lot of folks see like the Instagram version of running a business. Right. And that's just not true. And I think the recharge time, like the quiet time and you find it in your own ways and, and you need it, but that's how you show up with the energy. That is what drives your business. And we can't be on all the time. It's just not possible. Nor do I think it's healthy. And you know, when I meet founders, especially ones who have had early success, they, there's a hesitancy to leave whatever speed that they worked at in the very, very early days. And so I will meet founders like, yeah, I have hypertension. I'm, I'm, I'm not in the physical shape I want to be. I don't have the relationships I want to have. And you start to ask the question, you're like, why'd you start the business? Right? Like, oh, I started the business because I wanted freedom. I wanted to be successful. I wanted to build something. But yet they they drive themselves almost into the into the ground. And I think there just needs to be more and more founders talking about, hey, like, you know, I'm I'm into meditation. I don't need to post about it. I just do it. And for me, it's how I get that recharge. I get that energy. And it's not for five hours. It could be for sometimes for five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think as founders and, and CEOs, it's important. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I think that um, the, the one last thought I would say on this is I think work-life balance has come to have like a standard um, definition. I find it really problematic. Agree. Like, agree. Like, like for me, my work my, my work is my life, like not in a, not in an unhealthy way, but, um, that's what gives me the most amount of energy, like building for kids and students, like what sitting and having brunch would not give me more energy and like taking forced time off wouldn't give me more energy. So I think what you're, what you're getting at is like really finding whether it, whether it's five minutes, five hours, like, but define it for yourself and understand like what makes you feel energized and healthy and happy and do that. Like stop trying to read articles to figure out what your work-life balance should be because then you're not listening to yourself. Every person is different. And like, if I have to hear another thing about like the four day work week or this, like these platitudes don't work, <laughs> you know? And it's, it's, it's like, um, anyway, you're don't, I'm not going to go in. It's going to be, no, a I love it. I listen, I, I think the only guy who's really made the four hour work week work for him is Tim Ferriss, the guy selling the book. Yeah. And I share your exact thing. I'm not balanced. Yeah. And that's like, that's like an unsexy thing to say. Like it's the truth. Yeah. When I'm at work. I am all in. Yeah. And I find it fun. But and then when I'm with my family, I'm off. I'm not around. I don't, I don't write email on the weekend unless I want to. I'm not on a family vacation, jumping on a zoom call. I'm gone. And that is how I create balance. Like, oh, isn't that balance? No, it's not. Because the balance that you and I read about or hear about is that like, oh, every day I'm going to do, I'm going to have like, have 90 minutes of outside time every day. I'm like, maybe, maybe not. Right. Maybe I'm driving on something that's really exciting to me. Yeah. So I don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, but what is that? What, what you just did right there was it, you reflected 
on, you know, what passion and drive and like what sort of working culture allows you to be your best at work and your best self at home with your family. And I don't think enough people do the inner work to figure out that answer for themselves. And so like, I'm not a balanced person at all. And let me tell you this, if I was, my company wouldn't be where it is. And so I think that, and vilifying folks that quote unquote work a lot or don't work, I think that we got to move away from that. And we have to be far more nuanced. That person works a hundred hours a week. Great. And they were able to build a team that wants to work 100 hours a week. Great. Let's not vilify that. That team has a different culture where they believe X, Y, Z, and they work about 45 hours a week. Great. But like this whole thing of like, well, they did this and they were very successful. So we got, I mean, it's, 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 it's maddening and it's just so, so superficial. So I, um, I've been trying to kind of like push against that a lot. We're a team. We work hard. We are extremely mission driven and it is a little bit of like, hey, this is our culture. If you if it's if this is not the right fit for you, like no worries, come back to us in maybe a couple of years. But right now we're in it to win it. And if you want to join a company at this stage, you're not going to have the balance as you've defined it. But like you said, Saturdays and Sundays we're off. You know, like I'm in the mountains on Saturday. So, so um, anyway, that it, it, this is a longer conversation, Adam. But I think it's something that our generation needs to like talk about with with a little bit more care because we're gener- we're raising I was a daughter of immigrants and I grew up in a house where work was everything. They worked. They like, worked. And that was everything, right? Like that was their existence. And this country has always been built on the backs of immigrants. For, at different decades it was different immigrants from different countries whether it's from Europe or Asia or whatever it might be, but this country was built on that kind of work ethic. And I think that we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that history and acknowledge that like, it's not just about working less or working smarter. It's about building teams that are passionate and know how to live that passion out over time. That's not burning those people out. And like, that's the question to be solved versus let's across the board, reduce working hours. Like, mm, I don't know if that's going to solve your problem, you know? Honorable, but this has been an incredible conversation and I can't thank you enough. We get all of our guests out, kind of a lightning round. And these are just quick, right? Like top of your mind. As an entrepreneur, what trends are, are emerging that really interest you? Like what's, what, what are you reading about? What, what, what do you kind of think? Mm, that could be, that could be a future for me personally. That could be a future for our business. I just think it's an exciting time to build markets and build companies during a down market because it forces you to be really rigorous. It forces you to make money and sell and build a really, really profitable business. And so to all the entrepreneurs out there that are building right now, like we're privileged to be building right now because we're going to actually build far more robust businesses in the long term. Um, in terms of just trends that I'm super excited about, you know, I'm in the I'm 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 in spatial computing, and I think it's an incredible time uh, for VR and AR. And now we're so focused on outcomes and learning versus just kind of getting the thing up and running. So again, it, this is the time to be in in VR. One place in the world everyone needs to visit. Oh my gosh, uh, Hanya, Greece. Okay, that's a new one for the show. I love it greatest area of growth for you in the coming year? I think I have an object lesson to learn to really begin to build capacity in my team and build my team. Every founder goes through it. 
but how do you strategically move the right things off of your plate and have the humility to say, I'm not the best person. I do not know the most about this. I have to hire an expert um, and do what I'm good at, which is, you know, whatever X, Y, Z. So that's my area of work over the next 12 months of building this company is to acknowledge my own strengths and deficits and really, really begin to build for my deficits. I'm confident with that type of mentality, you will. Our last question, favorite podcast that we're not listening to, but we need to be. Oh my gosh. I, you're going to, I will have to take a rain check on that. I am not listening to anything right you're now. You're working. You're I'm, not listening. No. You're no. working. <laughs> but I'm so grateful to everybody listening to this conversation. Um, and once I, once I delegate and build, better build out my team, I think I will have an answer for you, Adam. <laughs> Ana Rupa, thank you so much for the incredible story and for joining the show. Thank you so much for having me, Adam. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining today's episode of Capital Class. If you're interested in joining our next discussion, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast platforms. Capital Class is a venture with the Strategist Podcast Network. To view the entire lineup of shows, visit strategistgroup.com. I'm Adam Geary, class is closed.